Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine and thank you for listening to this Captain's Collective podcast series, Behind the Bahamas, where each episode we sit down with guides, lodge owners, and fishing industry leaders to discuss stories, lessons, and the lore that makes these waters special. This podcast is brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Costa Sunglasses, Florida Fishing Products, Turtle Box Audio, and Orvis Fly Fishing. To learn more about our sponsors and to see special content, head to captainscollective.com. I also want to give a special thanks to our friends at Soulfly Lodge for hosting us and making this trip possible. To learn more about their operation in the Berry Islands, head to soulflylodge.com. In our last episode, we sat down with Travis Sands, a young, well-known guide in the Bahamas whose hard work and charming personality is quickly making a reputation among the fishing community. In today's episode, we sit down with Percy Darville, a true legend in the Caribbean, In this podcast, Percy tells his story of how he started guiding at 12 years old, working alongside his father in order to help his family make ends meet. Through decades of experience, Percy has learned a lot about stocking fish in the flats and making his clients feel comfortable. In this interview, Percy gives us a look into the mindset that has led him to be one of the most successful guides in his field. Percy also shares a touching story about how a small gift from Perk Perkins of Orvis changed his life in a remarkable way and as a teen, helped him down the right path that he's on today. We hope that you enjoy our time together. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective, Behind the Bahamas. Uh, I don't know if I should say they're my sons or my chickens. Here we go. Point you out at 11 o'clock. Do you see him? Say, yeah. The way I talk to you, I soothe you down. I like flying cats. I can see the buck fever. I can see the knees like shaking. And I'm always in the back of there like, control yourself, John. Control yourself. I can see the panic from here. Control yourself. Woosa. Woosa. <laughs> Felt like I was on top of the world. <laughs> Doing my first fly run without having to pay for it. That's a... Uh, gift I'll never forget because that got me started in a big way. They grew up with it with the engine and the car and all that. We grew up with everything else. That love for fishing. I used to run away from school just to go fishing. They don't do that these days. They run away to go in the mall. Right to Hurricane Dorian, Category 5 storm hitting the Bahamas, heading for the southeast. One of the strongest Atlantic hurricanes in recorded. There was no road to drive because there's water and debris everywhere. I, I jump out of the window at 1 o'clock at night in the full run of the hurricane. I'm like, I can't sleep and you're not knowing if my family's safe or not. God, and everybody's looking at me like a ghost. They're like, dude, where do you come from in this? I'm like, somebody gave me this house direction and I know my family's here and I wasn't stopping until I got here. And sure enough, I got there. Well, hey, Percy, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast, and it was great to fish with you yesterday and get to see kind of how you approach things in a little part of the place that you call home. Uh, Before we kind of dive into talking about bonefish and and what you're doing here at Soulfly, I'd love just to hear about your childhood and your upbringing here on the islands. Okay, I'm from a little island south of here, Little Harbor, and uh, we had like 12 different families there. And uh, um, after the kids start getting up to school age, a lot of the families move away and never came back. 
houses were all sh locked up and just started deteriorating in 19 and uh 92 hmm. hurricane andrew came by and abolished everything but my family was the only family that stayed and the only family that's still there wow and uh we used to travel back and forth to school every time we get out of school we'll come to the island spend the vacation time and then back to the school again and our mother would move back and forth with us and um, I got into fishing in my younger age actually I quit school at the age of 13 mm. just to go to work and my mother said you sure you want to do that I said well the old man's got nine kids to support and he needs some help somewhere so I went down to Chubkey, got a job as a bonefish guide there. Um, I was the youngest guide out of nine. Wow. At 13? Yep. And as time progressed, we were getting um, a lot of clients in, and all the jobs that <laughs> required expertise. Mm-hmm. A lot of the older guys wouldn't take it, especially when the fly fishing started approaching. Hmm. Everyone was afraid of the the uh, hook, getting hooked with the fly. <laughs> and uh, I went from there. I, I When the first guy came in, I told him, I said, well, I'll take the job. Hmm. So I took the job and I went out we were out until about 2.30 in the afternoon. Storm came, chased us back, and by that time he had hooked five fish and landed three. Was that your first ever uh, first, fly fishing guide my trip? My first, very first guide trip wow. of fly fishing. Never done it before. And luckily for me, we did mostly waiting. So I didn't have to, you know, move the boat mm -hmm. as much as I should. But um, as time progressed, I got more and more into it, and I just kept going with it and going with it, and that's how I got where I'm at today. Wow. Now, today you've, you've been able to travel and fish different areas and fish with a lot of great anglers. I'm curious, as you've met different people who are also guides or really great anglers, how you feel like maybe growing up in the setting that you did maybe shaped you as a guide in a way that's unique or different than other people you've come across? Um, I would say probably yes. Um, because I, I really, you know, put a lot of time and effort into it. I wanted, I, I, the only thing was going through my mind to work your way up to try and be one of the best. Mm -hmm. And I kept pushing and pushing and pushing at it. And as time progressed, my knowledge progressed along with that. What did those early years look like as you tried to discover how to guide for bonefish on the fly? How did you try to scout and, and evolve early on? Um, well, like I said, that one time was the first time, and then we started getting more and more fly fishing clients in, and I, was, I watched and saw what they were doing. And every time I got a chance, I would start practicing. 
And you, you might not believe this, but I took a spinning rod with heavy enough line on it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was practicing with. Wow. Okay. Then that's, I mean, I was surprised myself to see how it turned out. Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of interesting because, you know, you're 13 years old. You start guiding. You're down here. This is before iPhones, iPads, drones. <laughs> we were laughing about the technology yesterday. But, you know, relatively limited resources to evolve as an angler other than just time on the water and trying to figure things out yourself. What advice would you give to people who are at the beginning of their angling journey today? Um, I would say to them, um, just think about, you know, watch people and try and adapt from watching other people's movement Mm -hmm. and just picture it in your mind and by some means start practicing how to do it. And if you stick with it long enough, it would make you, you know, a, a good guide. Was there someone early on, like an older guide or somebody in particular that you felt like was a mentor figure to you back in those days? Um, uh, one of them that I can really think of was Perk Perkins mm-hmm. from Always. Mm-hmm. Um, I met him way back. I can't even remember how far back. And um, I was at Chub Key one day, and um, I saw these three gentlemen walking the dock. Mm-hmm. And we came head to head, and we started talking, and he said, well, we're here waiting on a boat to take us down to Andrus to do some bone fishing. He said, "Would uh, could we find someone to take us? I said, sure, I'll take you. It was Perk Perkins, Lee Perkins, and... Um, um, oh God, what's his name now? He's a fly fishing instructor. Tom Rosenbauer? No, um, it'll come to me. Okay. But anyway, I took them fishing and they caught fish that day. They were happy. Mm-hmm. And they took me and put me on the bow of the boat, put a fly rod in my hand mm. and told me to go ahead and try casting. And... I started out with that, and um, the instructor, he stand behind me, mm-hmm. and he held my hand, and he gave me the rhythm, and then he let me go, and I started from there. Mm. And every chance I got after that, I started practicing. And when they were leaving to go back to Florida, they stopped and chubbed to catch the plane out of there, and they left me a present. And they called me up and told me they left me a present. So when I went down there, the dock master said, I've got something for you. Someone left here. And when there was a brand new seven weight outfit. Wow. From Oars. And, and how did that feel in that moment just to have something like that done? I felt like I was on top of the world. <laughs> Doing my first fly, run, fly equipment without having to pay for it. Mm-hmm. That's a... Gift I'll never forget. Wow. Because that got me started in a big way. Yeah. Wow, that's a cool, that's an amazing story too. I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, really what you had to learn from outside of time on the water and what you can observe is the people that you fished with early on. Do you still feel that way today? Do you feel like a lot of clients are still showing you new things or teaching you new ways? 
Yeah, you'll never know everything in the fly fishing world. There's a lot more, no matter how much you know, there's a lot more to be learned. Mm -hmm. So when you were 13, part of the main reason that you went down to guide was to help provide for the family. Yeah. Did did the the passion began at the very first day for you? Was it before that? When did it go from a job to more of a passion for you? Well, back in my younger days, my father had a lot of people that used to come over on their boats, and they used to like to go fishing at Ambergris. And what they would do is take me with them just to keep the boat from running aground while they're waiting. Mm -hmm. And that's where I started getting the feel for it from now. Mm-hmm. from about seven years old. Wow. And so was your father a guide? Did he do a lot of different things? Yeah. He was a, he was a bonefish guide, a deep-sea guide, a bottom-fishing guide, and he did. He was a ace boat builder, a house builder, um, engine repair. Wow. All of that he did. And, and that makes sense to the, the culture down here if you don't have access to tons of things you got to be able to work on your own motors you got to be able to do some of these things is that is that kind of the type of way it was back then oh yeah as a matter of fact i started uh rebuilding engines i was about 17 years old Hmm. and i started rebuilding engines i used to go to the dump in chubkey when they dump all the older engines Mm -hmm. i pick up parts there take them clean them up and next thing you know i had a either a 33-horse outboard or a 40-horse outboard. Hmm. And if I run into a problem, my old man would chip in and just show me what to do. Yeah. So was there ever a point along the way, so 13, you start guiding, was there ever a point in your life where you felt like you were going to walk away from it, or was it just always? No, it was once I got started, that was it. I continue on that road without any thoughts. What do you feel like propelled you the most along the way? Was there something that helped you from getting burnt out or walking away? Um, I think, you know, once I got going and I started getting all these clients Mm -hmm. on my own, that motivated me to keep going. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people would probably say the money, but it wasn't the money because back then I was getting paid while I was working out of Chubb, I was only getting paid $70 every two weeks. Mm-hmm. But my tips used to add up. Because mm-hmm. I, was, I was, like I said, I was the most aggressive one of the guides, mm-hmm. even at the youngest age. Tell me about your first boat. My first boat, mm, my first boat was a 16-foot, what they call a Crosby. Hmm. It's uh, it's designed similar to a Boston whaler with a concave bow, mm-hmm. and it it um, it carry a, a small outboard. Well, I was fortunate. The the gentleman that owned Chubb, he and my father were real close. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me, and he had a eighteen horse Evinrude mm. that he wasn't using. And I asked him if he wanted to sell it. And he sold it to me for $400. Wow. And that was what I used on my boat. 
and I used to use that boat for bo uh, bone fishing also, even though the concave on the bow was a little noisy. Yeah. But it made do. Tell me about the, the city at that time, because I'm imagining that from the moment that you first began guiding, there's been a ton of change, you know, with the infrastructure and places around it. Oh, the city back then, it was, um, how should I put it? It was uh, more like village, like a village. And time after time, you know, it started growing and growing and growing. And now it's, I think it's overgrown now. Mm -hmm. I think Nassau is very overgrown with population. Mm -hmm. And I, from what I've seen, there ain't too many places where you can put more buildings. Mm. One of the things, too, that's kind of interesting is as you were growing as a guide and you were learning your way around the Bahamas, at the same time, in a lot of ways, the fly fishing, for lack of a better phrase, the fly fishing industry was growing and creating more products. And as you were kind of getting engaged to to that world at the same time of growing as a guide, I'm curious how, how you feel like maybe fly fishing has changed for positive and grown in, in ways maybe that certain things from back in those days were lost. Um, yeah, um, the, uh, the fly fishing industry had grown because back in those days, the, uh, the equipment we were using, like fly rods, were mostly bamboo rods, and now we've got, um, um, how do you say it? Uh, graphite. Graphite and all that stuff and i mean it it rapidly changed mm -hmm. as we all know it didn't really take a slow period of time to do that mm -hmm. and um the reels were i've got a a loop reel an old loop reel that caught the biggest fish that i ever caught and the drag on that thing when you tighten down the drag, mm -hmm. you've got to reel against the drag, too. Wow. Tell me about that fish. I'd love to hear about it. Um, I don't know if you heard about Sandy Key, mm -hmm. south of here. We found this fish. This guy, he was a guide from up in Montana, and he hurt his foot. He couldn't go in the water. So we saw the single fish working up in the shallows. And I tried to get that boat as far as I can in there, and he made a long cast, and he caught that fish. We didn't have a, a weighing scale, but I had a measuring tape. He measured out at 34 inches. Wow. And according to the uh, conversion chart, that fish should have been 15.6. Wow. And the only thing I came that came any closer to that I think was one that I caught not too long ago 28 and a half wow and the guy had fishing about 30 minutes after that he caught another one 26 and a half that's a good day half day really um I'm curious too like the the road to the marina is named after you and you're considered kind of one of the pioneers or the pioneer of this area i'm kind of interested in how you got connected to the berry islands and great harbor and kind of what it looked like to explore that and try to figure out this fishery 
Well, Barry Allen's is home from a kid. It's home. Mm-hmm. And as far as the road goes, I was um, I was um, in a um, competing for the Casica uh, uh, Award, which is one of the most prestigious award you can win in the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. And I, I got nominated with, I don't know if you heard about Andy Smith and Andros. I have. Well, Andy, myself, and another guy out of Nassau. And I won the award. So after winning the award, they had a little gathering for me right there in that road. And they decided to name the road after me. Hmm. And that's how that name got there. When you think about that, what does that mean to you? It means a lot. It means that, you know, I was highly appreciated before I passed on, like mm-hmm. the rest of the roads that's named after people. Mm-hmm. They all had already died when they named the roads. And I said, mm-hmm. thank you, I got mine before I die. Yeah, you got to be there. <laughs> yeah. When you think back at all your years of guiding and along the way, you know, you you have these moments that, you know, whether it's, you know, someone leaving you a fly rod or naming a road after you or, you know, just milestone moments. Are there any that really stick out to you as maybe the most special or most impactful? Um, the road, yes. Um, as far as uh, someone leaving me a rod like that, I appreciated that highly because I cherished that rod until it, it was no more. Mm-hmm. It only lasts so long, and after that, then I I um I met up with Perk again, and we fished a few times. As a matter of fact, I fished his whole family mm-hmm. after you know over a period of time. Mm-hmm. Him, his father, his wife, his kids, all of them, and. Now I'm kind of connected with them, so anything I need, mm-hmm. I can get. Yeah. That's the only outfitter I can email or call up and tell them I need this or that, and I'll get it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing for me as I prepare for this just to hear about the impact that you've made on people's lives. And, you know, you've been really faithful to continue to work here and build relationships and help figure out the fishery and then pass it on, you know, even your son's here this morning and, you know, pass it on to the next generation of, of guides. Um, I'm, I'm curious to hear about how you approached kind of coming here and, and figuring out the fishery. Was that a, a really strategic thing? Did it, did it just happen to happen? Um, no, actually I was fishing out of Chubb for 18 years and, um, I had a little problem with one of the owners down at Chubb, and I said, you know what, I'm going to try Great Harvey Key because I fished out of here mm-hmm. um, quite a few times. I had to come down from Chubb to here to fish people. I got called in, and I said, there isn't anyone there that's doing it full time, so why not try it? And I moved up here in 85 and got started. and took right off from there and a lot of my clients I had in Chubb followed me here wow yeah that was my next question was just kind of moving here I'm guessing was there more or less 
places to stay, places to get parts. How, how was that transition for you as far as trying to get clients over here? Was it, you know, a, a bigger challenge than Chubb or Well, a, a lot of them, a lot of them had their own boats, so mm-hmm. they'd come and stay in the marina. Mm-hmm. And there were a few places back then, not many for rent. Um, that rental deal, that, that grew real big over I would say a period of the last Mm 15-20 years Mm -hmm. so now you you know we've got a lot of places now that people can rent Mm -hmm. and uh, that helped a big in a big way because seeing that they have places to stay now everybody's trying to get in as a matter of fact a lot of people sometimes are on wait list Mm because there's no, nothing available. Um, when we were on the boat yesterday, I asked you, you know, what's your, your favorite way to fish? And you had mentioned that if you had to pick, you would probably pick waiting for bonefish. Yeah. Can you give me the most important lessons you've learned from your 50 plus years of waiting for bonefish? What's your, your Percy crash, crash course? Well, with, uh, uh, comparing waiting against boating, you have more chances and you can position yourself a lot better. Mm-hmm. You've got, the only thing you got to be able to do is wait quietly, mm-hmm. but you can even get closer to the fish most times. And the, the big part of waiting is the boat's not allowed to get in to where you can wade most mm-hmm. of the times because of the shallow water. Mm-hmm. So that that's a big plus right there, being able to wade the flats. And the majority of my clients I have, they mostly want to wade. Mm-hmm. They feel more comfortable wading than they do fishing from the boats. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the most important things like with people who are new to waiting for bonefish that you really try to help them understand these are the big building blocks that you need to have as far as your approach and the do's and don'ts and that type of thing well first thing i tell them is you have to wade quietly Mm -hmm. and on a calm day you have to increase the length on your on your leader because when it's too calm a short leader um, when you cast the the line is going to make noise Mm -hmm. so the longer your leader the better you can cast to the fish, the more quieter you can cast to the fish. And that's one of the key mm-hmm. of being able to get closer to the fish in uh, on wading flats. How long do you prefer? Um, a standard leader is nine feet. Mm-hmm. I like to have minimum of 12 feet on a calm day mm-hmm. because it gives you that extra three feet of line being that far that you know that far away from your splice on the mm-hmm. line and leader because the line i'm sure you've seen this at times the line hit the water mm-hmm. even though the the fly is light enough to get to the fish without spooking them when the line hits the water it makes a little heavier noise and it spooks the fish mm-hmm. yeah i had that happen yesterday a couple of times and uh and i also was i learned that i was um when presenting, I was moving the fly too fast. Mm. In your opinion, See, what's the best pre- presentation? 
The best presentation is to watch your fish in the direction they're moving and try and get it at least, say, six feet in front of them. Mm -hmm. And when they approach the area where the fly is, initial strip, make it a slow strip. Mm -hmm. Because if it moves too fast, it's going to look like the fly is trying to attack the fish. And that will spook them every time. Mm -hmm. But that slow strip, that initial slow strip, they think it's something trying to get away from them. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, when if, if you could wake up and you could control the weather, you could control the every factor, what would be the perfect scenario for going out and, bone, and waiting for bonefish? Um, I would say probably around 10 knot winds. Mm -hmm. That way you have a little motion on the surface, mm -hmm. but it's not to the still point where you would spook them as often as you would on a slick calm day. Mm -hmm. Because the slick calm days, I mean, even sometime you talk and if the water's shallow enough, they can hear you. Mm -hmm. And as, as you've seen, these fish are not, they're, they're not easy. Mm -hmm. They're spooky, spooky, spooky. Yeah. What, what about water temperature and tides? And if, if you're looking at the forecast for the day outside of the 10 knot wind, what's getting you excited when you're going, okay, this is the puzzle pieces are coming together here. Um, with the water temperature, I, I, I think if you got water, say anything from maybe 75 up to about 80, mm -hmm. it's perfect temperature. And another thing that plays a role in there also is the uh, barometric pressure. Mm -hmm. Anytime that barometric pressure starts to drop, it affects them and they, they just get crazy. Mm -hmm. When you think back over the years of waiting for bonefish, are there any days that really stick out to you as special to you? Not necessarily catching more fish, but certain memories, maybe with a friend or a loved one that really stand out as banner days? Mm. I've had, uh, I think one of my better days that I remember is I had a kid with me one day and um, his, his mother charted me to take him out and he caught, even though he was bait fishing, he caught 32 bonefish mm. and by 2.30 he said he was tired, take him back home. For you, what, when you're when you're looking at a day like that, what's what's success for you? Is it just everyone having a good time? Do you have your own standard oh, yeah. in your head? Oh yeah, I like I like to see people catch fish and be happy. Mm -hmm. I'm more out of how people fish than me personally fish myself. Mm -hmm. I only did that yesterday because you guys said grab a rod. <laughs> yeah, well, I w well, it kind of goes back to what you said though earlier that you learn a lot from watching people fish. I learned a lot from watching you approach those fish yesterday and got to, you know, watch you catch two fish and watched how you moved and how you held your rod and how you approached them. So, I mean, to me, that was a huge learning opportunity. And I'm sure that there's people who feel the same when they're waiting that, you know, having you there to kind of show how you would do it is a big reason of coming oh, out yeah. with you. A lot, of, a lot of people always ask me if I would be willing. Uh, let me back up a little bit. I have some clients sometime, they can't get the, the uh, line 
the fly to the fish, mm-hmm. and they would say, would you mind casting it for me? And I said, not at all. And I'd take the rod, and I'd cast it out, and I'll give it to them, and then I'll tell them how to strip. Mm-hmm. And they're happy as day goes by. Mm-hmm. So I don't mind doing it. Yeah. Is for you, when you think about guiding and kind of what's kept you in it so long, what do you feel like outside of your love for the fish? Is it the relationships that you build? Is it the challenge? What, what really draws you to guiding in day in and day out? Both of those questions. Both of those questions is, it is, does really have me uh, going because I love to see people catch fish. And like I said, I prefer to watch you catch a fish Mm-hmm. than for me to throw a line out there and catch a fish. Mm-hmm. That's why a lot of times people tell me, um, grab a rod. And I said, no. They said, come on, grab a rod. I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I said, because if I do that, I might end up catching more fish than you do, and then I'm going to feel guilty because you're the one that's paying the bill. Mm-hmm. And I think you deserve to catch the fish, not me. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's kind of cool, too, to be here at, at Soulfly and get the chance to hang out with the other guides. And I know people even uh, that I've hung out with across Florida and, and other areas that look up to you as uh, a figure that they aspire to be or be like. For you, as you look at this next generation of guides and anglers, when you look at your life and all the experiences and lessons and things that you've learned in life, what, what is it that you hope to pass on? Um, I'd like to pass on all of my knowledge to them. Mm-hmm. I can I can offer it, but it's up to them to accept it. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't make them do it, but I'd like to do that. When you were young, did you have a hard time accepting knowledge from others, or was that always... Oh, no. I always believed that, um, you know, if it's especially someone older than I am, if they tell me something, they've had more experience about it than I do, and the only way I'm going to learn is to listen to them. Hmm. How do you feel like if someone's listening to this and they want to be a, a good listener and soak it all in, what advice would you give them on that? Um, absorb everything you can and just get it and store it in your head. Hmm. And try to remember everything you hear. One of the things I also kind of wanted to talk to you about was your kind of role here at Soulfly and as the lead guide and really the lead guide of the island because you guys have such a, a amazing operation here. As you've evolved and you started off and you're 13 and you take your first bonefish, you know, trip and then eventually now you're you're leading a guide team. I'm curious kind of how all that came about and for you what that challenge looks like to be leading others and and working on a team. Well, I I feel good about it because um, there's a lot that, you know, they they still can learn. And I'm, I'm in a position to where if they don't understand something and they ask me, more than likely I can tell them, you know, what's what. And as far as being a 
the lead guide, I don't consider that, consider me being the lead guide because as far as I'm concerned, we all do the same thing. We've got knowledge about it and we're good at it. And uh, I just feel like we're one family working together. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they all, they look up to me, but still yet, I accept them as family. What do you feel like is key to having a dynamic like that? Um, you mean with the group? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say everybody knows, almost know the next person movement, mm-hmm. which works good because then you don't have to go through all kind of explanation to each other about this or that or the next. We all know where we're going and when what we have to do. Mm-hmm. I'm curious too. Like you had talked about, you have a desire to to pass along your knowledge, and I think um, to a lot of young anglers and, and anglers, they always want to think about the presentation of the fish, or they want to talk about catching more fish. But for you, when you think about passing along mm-hmm. your knowledge. Is it more than just here's how to catch fish? And if so, what are those things beyond just the actual cast and presentation? Um, the, uh, the um, let's see how to put this now. I'm lost for words on this. Oh, no, no. And I can edit out little pauses if you just want to think about it. I guess I'm just saying, thinking when you're trying to pass on knowledge, you know, what what things outside of just how to catch fish is what I'm trying to see if we can get into. Well, for one, you got to know your boat operations. You got to know how to operate your boats. You got to know how to angle the the client so they can get the best cast. Mm -hmm. I know there are a lot of times you get in position where you'll be uh, pulling along and fish shows up and they show up from the wrong angle. Mm-hmm. And then you got clients that's trying to do a cross cast and they're not good at it. You try to see how quick you can get the boat turned for them mm-hmm. to get them positioned right and try and get them as close as possible without spooking. Mm-hmm. Are there other things like when you're when you're trying to position the boat and you know from from waiting fishing are there other things too as far as you know everybody kind of thinks about sunlight for instance but are there certain things that you're that's going through your mind when you're trying to position a boat for bonefish other than just the the typical sunlight or well with without the sunlight you have to have the right angle in order to see the fish Mm -hmm. because you get say for instance you've got a cloudy day and there are certain angles where the cloud creates a glare on the surface. And you always try to see if you can work around to get out of the glare because if you, the fish is in the glare, you can't see them at all. Hmm. Even though you might be wearing polarized glasses. The, the polarized glasses doesn't totally kill the glare. Mm-hmm. What... Um big mistakes do you see a lot of people make when they hop on the boat you know you had mentioned you've mentioned a few along this conversation but i was just curious the the big kind of mistakes that you see people commonly make with targeting bonefish um a lot of people 
they t pull their line out and they just drop it on the deck and most of the time they will not cast the line out at the beginning to stretch it mm -hmm. which is a one of the things you want to do and um, they'll be casting and they wouldn't look down to see if they're standing on the line or not mm -hmm. and then when they make the cast they're up they're short 10 12 feet and then they look down and they say oh shit and i always tell them make sure you cast your line out mm -hmm. and if it's got memory in it stretch it mm -hmm. Because the memory is going to cause a tangle if you try to, to cast that line with, with that in it. Mm -hmm. And those, those are the, the key things a lot of people make mistakes with. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you get clients, you know, you're trying to tell them what to do and they just ignore you. Mm -hmm. So when that happens, I say, well, whatever goes, goes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would imagine that, you know, being in this area and guiding for as long as you've guided, you would come across some pretty funny stories over the years. Are there any funny stories that you cherish and hold on to mm. that you can share? <laughs> when it comes to that, my memory goes blank. That's like somebody calling me on the phone and say, I'm coming over. Do you need me to bring anything for you? As soon as they ask that question, I blank out. Mind you, there are a lot of things I need, but yeah. I can't remember what. <laughs> well, but, are there certain things that, you know, that certain memories, I guess, that from over the years that you just find yourself, your mind drifting to as kind of a place that brings you peace or? Hmm. Yeah. There ain't much I can think of. One I can think of is, you know, watching people after a day of fishing, mm -hmm. and uh, they had a nice day of fishing. See them when they start celebrating. I know then they had a real good fishing day. Mm. And that makes me feel real good. Anytime I got clients I can bring back in and they're laughing and talking about their day of fishing, it makes me feel good. Mm. Over the past 50 years of guiding, what has been some of the big challenges that you've had to overcome and how, how did you get through those challenges? Um, God. Well, weather is one. Anytime you have bad weather out there, that's a big challenge because a lot of times you have to pull into the wind and the current at the same time mm. to try and get in front of the fish. And most of the times the fish are moving faster than the boat is. Mm -hmm. So you have to try and get as close as possible for people to take their cast and then you got a crosswind and they're trying to cast directly at the fish. You're telling them you have to alternate one way or the other, either right or left. Mm -hmm. And most of the time they, they just try to go straight at the fish and 
the fish is here and the flies goes over here. Mm -hmm. And you tell them you have to correct for the win. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them, they, they're so anxious and want to cast, they just don't do it. Mm. And it gets aggravating, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> because you want to see people catch fish. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to talk them in how to do it, but they're still not listening to you. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you try to do? I mean, at some point, do you just say, okay, this person's not really wanting to learn or listen or do you have do you Some, change your tone what sometimes do you do? sometimes that happens um no i don't change my tone because like i said before you know they're paying for the trip mm -hmm. so if they don't want to listen to what i tell them then that's their business mm -hmm. i just go ahead and do what i have to do mm-hmm and hopefully, eventually, they'll understand what I've been trying to tell them. Hmm. You know, kind of with that same spirit in mind, I, I was curious, you know, with as you have evolved and grown as a guide, you've had opportunities to travel to different places and fish with different guides yourself. Are there any particular guides or, or trips that you really felt like you got some golden nuggets to bring back here with you and really changed anything in how you fish? Um. Well, I've fished, uh, for six years, I've fished the uh, bonefish tournament that used to travel from island to island. And I fished with some good guides. Um, there was a few of them that were mediocre. Like one guy, I was observing in a, a tournament up in Exuma. And we had a lady angler. Her name is Wendy Gunn, and she hooked a fish pulling along the mangrove. And I told him, I said, Steve, I said, you got to back the boat away from the mangrove to keep mm -hmm. the fish away. Well, he just stuck the pole in the mud and staked the boat up right there. Luckily, the fish went to the open water and she was able to get the fish. Hmm. But if that fish had gone left, towards the mangrove, it would have been a lost fish. Hmm. And um, let's see, Grand Bahama, I had the, the two trips I fished Grand Bahama, I had two good guides down there. Hmm. And um, one of them was Stanley Glinton and the other one was Michael Glinton. I remember those two. But yeah, I've had um, I've had some good fishing trips with with other guides, and uh, some of them, you know, I saw where they were making mistakes, and I told them about it, mm -hmm. and they they said thanks for telling me. Mm -hmm. So. And you had mentioned you'd been with some mediocre guides and some great guides. The question I like to ask a lot on this show is, you know, in your opinion, what makes a great guide? Um, a great guide is a person that can really guide the boat properly and have a good relationship with the clients. Mm -hmm. Like some guys, they would get ticked off if, you know, they try to tell the client to do something and they don't do it right. They get ticked off about it. And then the next thing they, they probably would do is 
exchange some words, mm -hmm. which I don't do. And someone that knows how to handle the boat without you having to tell them anything. Mm -hmm. I had one guy in uh, Exumer when I caught my third place fish. All I had to tell him was, he didn't see the fish at that time, and I said, I said, Abby, just turn me to the right a little bit, which he did. I cast over, hooked the fish, and we got the fish to the boat, rocky bottom. Mm -hmm. And we got the fish to the, to the boat. He jumped overboard and scooped the fish up in his arms. That's how desperate he was <laughs> to get that fish, because he knew that fish would have given me third place. Mm. And... Um, I've I've fish with a few a few decent guides. Mm -hmm. um, actually, there were a few guides that I fish with that questioned me about some things too that they didn't really know too much about, mm. and I was able to help them. Mm. Yeah, it seems like um, as I've met different people, a lot of the the guides who are often considered and have great reputations love learning love education sharing education learning for themselves and even just you know being around the past couple of days here i can tell that that's you know something that's a part of how you try to carry yourself and you know whether we're out here this morning because we're weathered out today casting or if it's just trying to have conversations on the boat do you feel like um most of the the guides in the next generation do you feel like they have that same spirit of wanting to figure things out like you had to have while you were here or do you feel like maybe that's something that's being lost um i think i think it's gonna it's gonna work out because i've got there are three two brothers and a and a nephew in in uh Elutra that i train and they're they're up there in the business now. Mm -hmm. They moved up pretty quick, and they um, they they uh, they're, they're pretty much like I am. They they kind of follow in my footsteps, and you know they take what I told them. And but I think I think it's gonna work, providing you don't get these real young guys that thinks they know it all mm -hmm. because sometimes you get a lot of those guys and they, they believe they know it all and they don't want to listen to what you tell them. Mm -hmm. Even though you're the knowledge, knowledge, knowledgeable person, mm -hmm. they don't want to listen to you. So mm -hmm. I, think, I think it's going to work out pretty good though. You know, well, this is uh, the first time that you know, we've done a, a big kind of podcast where we try to pull together a team and a group of people and do a series and it's kind of fun to, to come here to a place, a different country. And I'm curious what you feel like is, if, if you had to answer the question, what's special about Bahamian fishing culture, what you would say? Mm. Um, I guess I would say the fishing um, areas which we have a lot of fishing flats. I mean, you've seen what we have out here. 
that flat goes for miles and miles. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the availability of fish in this area, our fish population has been holding out for years. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen any decline in it either way. I know sometimes when the hurricane go by, we don't see fish for days, and then all of a sudden when they show up, it seems like there's a ton of fish just move mm -hmm. in. But um, I would have to say our, our fishing area are a good, lively mm -hmm. areas. What about the people? you feel like there's something that Bahamian guides and anglers have that's special or unique as far as, you know, the culture around it? Mm. Well, I would have to say the knowledge and the knowledge and um, the way they treat the people. Hmm. Because um, you got to treat the people nice in order to have them come back. Hmm. That's good. I was also, um, so tomorrow we're going to be going over to your brother's restaurant, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I, when I heard about that, I thought that was really fascinating. I'd love just to hear about his restaurant and kind of how that operation runs. Well, that was established in uh, 93, I think, it was him and my mother. Actually, the building that it's in was a building that I was repairing to do the same thing. And then Hurricane Andrew came in 92 and damaged it. And I was, I was uh, working at the time and my brother asked me, he said, what are you gonna do with the building? I said, what do you wanna do? He said, well, I'd like for me and the old lady to open up a little restaurant and bar. I said, sure, go ahead and do it. And I said, if you need some help, let me know, and I'll chip in and help you. And they got it going, and it's been going ever since. Mm -hmm. And she, she died 11 years ago now. And he, uh, I told him, I said, you might as well just go ahead and keep it going. So he's in it all by himself now. Mm -hmm. And... Sometimes when he's got big uh, groups coming in, mm -hmm. he would take a girl from here down here down there to help him. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, he's there by himself. He's actually he's the only one on the island. Yeah, that's I had heard that um, he was the only one on the island, and you have to access it by boat, and you have to have reservations. Reservations, yeah. And he liked for you, if you can, to put your reservations in a day in advance. Mm -hmm. Because then he got to get in the morning and prepare everything. Mm -hmm. What does he cook there? His lunch special is fish fingers, cracked conch, peas and rice, and coleslaw, all on the same plate. Hmm. What Are you a, a cook yourself? Yeah. What's your, your favorite thing to cook? Um, I like to cook to cook what we call the boil pot. Just take some meat and a lot of vegetable mm -hmm. and cook it all up in a, a nice gravy mm -hmm. and have that. Mm. 
That sounds amazing. My, my last question for you, and I'm really grateful for the, the time and the information that you've shared with me on this trip, is if you could go back to yourself, you're, you know, 13 years old and you're starting off this, this whole journey, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, be courageous and try and move ahead with as much knowledge as you can. And uh, if I want, if I had to, ch if I had the choice to change from what I am doing now, it wouldn't happen, hmm. because this is my pride and joy. What's the courage factor in that? The courage is giving yourself the the go ahead experience, and try accumulate more experience. Hmm. The more experience you get, the better off you would be, and the easier it would make it for you in the life ahead. Well, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for taking us out yesterday. I had a blast. My pleasure. Thanks again for listening to The Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is The Captain's Collective. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more.